All who are able are invited to stand for the reading of the gospel lesson. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Mark. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah. I'm sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Retweet the link, John the Baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair, a leather belt around his waist, ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Every, uh, every Advent, we get reintroduced to a person who, given the number of references to him in the gospels, can't be viewed as anything other than a minor character. Indeed, he appears by name only once in the Bible, making him almost a throwaway character, right? I mean, Crispus, the synagogue leader in Corinth, is mentioned more often. Barsabbas, also known as Justice, one of the possible replacements for Judas Iscariot among the the apostles, he makes more appearances. So does Tychicus, an Asian companion of Paul's. But though this character's name is mentioned only once, his looming presence throughout the Gospels acts as a character all its own. He's lurking behind every run-in with the temple authorities, and his presence is felt from the very first moments of Jesus' narrative. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the world should be registered. That's it. This one verse. The only time that he's mentioned by name in the Gospels. So, I mean, you might be tempted to believe that he occupies perhaps only a minor place in the narrative, just happens, you know, to be the big wheel in charge for the first half of Jesus' life. No big deal. I mean, Augustus can't be that important to Jesus' story if the gospel writers only think to name him once, right? Now, I guess I can see how one might think that, but some characters in a narrative are, are, are so pervasive that they don't have to be named to know that almost everything in the narrative is shaped by a relationship to this barely named character. The white whale in Moby Dick. 
It makes a physical appearance in the novel only a handful of times. And yet there would be no Moby Dick, a novel, without having the white whale in Captain Ahab's sights for the whole story. I mean, every scene, every word is shaped by one almost invisible character and the captain's obsession with it. Whispers of the white whale drive every move the captain makes. Now, Caesar Augustus occupies a similar role in the Gospels. Even though Matthew, Mark, and John never even mention him by name. But his, his looming presence in the background, it, it, it shapes the whole narrative and helps define Jesus' life and mission. So if we did kind of a crime scene analysis, Augustus' fingerprints are all over the story of Jesus' life, ministry, and death. But the question is, how? When my grandfather died in 2003, my family asked my brother and I to do the eulogy. This, this was my grandpa, uh, Theodore Roosevelt Murray, who, with my grandmother, started the children's home down in Mexico. I've talked to you about that. Needless to say, my grandparents were viewed by many people with a kind of awe, right, that's usually reserved for heads of state, saints, TikTok influencers. But not everyone felt quite so reverential and admiring of my grandfather. For all the good he did in his life, my grandfather had a temper, which most people who admired him didn't really understand, I think. My mom and her two siblings had grown up before my grandfather had become a saint. And consequently, they knew firsthand about his anger issues, and they were girding themselves for his funeral to hear all the nice things about him without the kind of context that would help people really understand him. My mom told me the night before that some people in the family were concerned about painting my grandfather as a blameless paragon of virtue. I mean, and it wasn't that anybody wanted me to be mean or, or, or vindictive at all. It's not, nobody, it wasn't that people disliked my grandfather. They just wanted me to be honest about who he really was. But if you stop and think about it, that's a lot of power, isn't it? In one person's hands. Because the reality is, whoever tells the story gets to say what the story is and means, right? Maybe it's the person who tells it first. Maybe it's the person who tells it longest uh, or most captivatingly. It, but there's no denying that the story that gets told is the one that gives shape and meaning to an event or a person's life. It matters. But the whole episode got me to thinking, you know, lives are pretty complicated, right? There's no way to find the words that will perfectly portray the memory of a person. So you can never be quite sure about the kind of legacy that you're going to leave behind. 
but some story's going to get told by somebody. As lovely as it might seem to, to be Huck Finn and get to witness our own funerals, see who shows up and what they say, but the truth is we don't really control what people think of us or what they'll say about us after we're gone, do we? I mean, somehow we know that inside, but it, it doesn't really seem fair, does it? To have somebody else be the one who determines what your life means. But, as I say, somebody's going to tell the story of our lives. The question is, who gets to tell it? And the next question is, will it be true? Now, the answer to those two questions make all the difference in the world, don't they? Caesar Augustus understood the, parables, uh, the perils of having somebody else sum up your life. I mean, there's just too much uncertainty there. You can't control what people are going to say. I mean, you could commission a book like, say, Virgil's The Aeneid, which is kind of a thinly veiled literary attempt to connect the founder of Troy and the founder of Rome in a heroic fashion, a kind of making Caesar Augustus, not the founder of Rome, but the, the first emperor, a figure like Aeneas. If you want to come out and make sure that whatever is said about you is what you have envisioned, it's probably best to cut out the middleman, right? I mean, you just write it yourself. And that's what Caesar Augustus did. Unwilling to leave it to history or to chance, he wrote something like an autobiography, the first of its kind by a world leader. It was called the Res Gestae Divi Augusti, which means the deeds of the divine Augustus or the deified Augustus. Now, this autobiography that he'd reproduced uh, that, he'd, that he'd written had been reproduced on bronze tablets that sat outside of his mausoleum, right? Just so there's no question who he's talking about. And they were spread out throughout the empire. The, the, the whole thing sort of summarizes Caesar, uh, Augustus's military and political feats as, as, as Rome's first and arguably most successful emperor. The opening sentence begins this way. Below is a copy of the acts of the deified Augustus by which he placed the whole world under the sovereignty of the Roman people and of the amounts which he expended upon the state and the Roman people. The race gestae is political propaganda that presents Augustus in an unfailingly positive light, as you would expect. It, it was created to justify his power and the transition from a Roman republic in which there were kings to a Roman empire in which there were emperors. Now, these controversial aspects included in his consolidation of power 
it was important that he pointed them out because everybody, the reason that Julius Caesar was assassinated was because he dared to call himself king or dictator for life. And nobody wanted that. So Augustus runs as far away from that as he can, and he calls himself an emperor. Starts a whole new period. And he's very careful about the way he crafts this narrative of his reign because he wants control over what his life meant. The race geste is a perfect example of what the Romans called a euangelion. In the Roman Empire, euangelion was a... Um, It was a public announcement that celebrated victory, stability, and the arrival of a hopeful new era, in this case, under Augustus's rule. Now, in Augustus's case, the res gestae was a triumphal public declaration that victory and hope have arrived with the rise of a new and transformative leader who will usher in a new era of blessings to come. It, it, it represented imperial propaganda at its finest in the ancient world. Now, in the Greek of Jesus' day, the word euangelion was a way to ensure uh, that Caesar's good news about military and political victories would be widely known. Like a, a, a time, town crier, you would have euangelisti, who would stand at the center of town and they would proclaim the euangelion to the whole public. Now, early English translated this word as good news or glad tidings. That's exactly what we find when we look up the context surrounding Luke's mention of Augustus. A few verses after we're told that the census that Augustus has required everyone to enroll in is going to include Mary and Joseph, then Luke mentions an angel of the Lord saying, Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news. I am bringing you euangelion of great joy for all people. But you see, euangelion gets translated in our culture most often as gospel. It's where we get the words like, evangelism and evangelize and evangelist and evangelical. So each of these four gospels in the Christian scriptures, each of them is a self-consciously drafted document comparing itself to the, the euangelisti, literally the evangelists, whose job was to announce the political and military victories of a different emperor. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are themselves town criers. And Mark, in our passage for this morning, even opens his gospel with an official-sounding euangelion. I mean, listen, listen just briefly, once again, to the words of the res gestae. Below is a copy of the acts of the deified Augustus by which he placed the whole world under the sovereignty of the Roman people. Now, listen to the way that Mark begins our passage. 
the beginning of the good news of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. That is to say, the one who has been deified by God. Both Augustus and Jesus represent a new kind of ruler. As Ched Myers notes, Mark is serving notice that he's challenging the apparatus of imperial propagation. His dramatic prologue heralds the advent of an anointed leader, a Messiah, who's confirmed by the deity who proclaims a kingdom. In other words, Mark is taking dead aim at Caesar and his legitimating myths. From the very first line, Mark's literary strategy is revealed as subversive. Myers goes on to say that the gospel is not an inappropriate title for this story, for Mark will indeed narrate a battle. But the good news of Mark does not herald yet another victory by Rome's armies. It's a declaration of war upon the political culture of the empire. Now, unlike Matthew and Luke, who go into great detail about the circumstances of Jesus' birth, Mark doesn't even mention Jesus' nativity at all. Instead, he opens his gospel not with angels and shepherds, no magi bearing gifts. He opens his gospel with a declaration of war, which is pretty bold given the circumstances that Mark himself is writing in. Because remember, the gospel of Mark was probably written just after the first Jewish-Roman war ended. The emperor Nero, who hated Christians, died in 68. According to Rome, the Jews had gotten so unruly that all of Palestine had to be taught a lesson. So the Romans had gotten so fed up with Jewish stubbornness that the new emperor, Vespasian, sent his son Titus to bring the Jewish nuisance to its knees. And in the process, the Romans razed the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, all in 70 CE. Now, you might think that because the Christians weren't Jews that they'd be safe, right? Rome's mad at the Jews, not the Christians. And yet, the problem that Christianity encountered was that the big shots in Rome really didn't know there was a difference between Christians and Jews. Christians, after all, had only a few years prior made a conscious decision to leave Judaism behind and become a distinct religion. So Mark is writing his gospel in a world that has just recently seen Christianity, because of its relationship to Judaism, rocket to the top of Rome's 10 most wanted list. So you have this real agitation going on while Mark is writing, but instead of trying to pour oil on the waters, he starts the gospel by picking sides against Rome. So, I mean, just so we're clear, Mark's gospel isn't a nice story to tell the kiddies around the campfire. It's a declaration of war against the strongest empire that the world, but at least to that point, had ever seen. So here's where it gets really interesting. Who's going to lead everybody into this battle that Mark announces? Well, apparently it's the prophet Elijah. 
as soon as Mark announces the rise of a new empire that will face down the threat that Rome poses, he tells us about the one who will act as a, a herald, uh, uh, an evangel uh, evangelisti, who is preparing the way for this new world. Of course, we're told that this evangelisti, this bringer of glad tidings, is John the Baptist. But the description is of another herald, someone who another is another unnamed character in this part of the narrative, will ultimately help to clear the path for a new Caesar. This guy is the prophet Elijah. Now, it's deaf storytelling that Mark does here. Can you think of anywhere else in any of the Gospels where a person's clothing acts as the sort of primary descriptor? I mean, why all this attention on the camel hair and the leather belt, right? I mean, why does Mark assume that the reader is going to care about John's disgusting menu choices? Because this is a stock description of the prophet Isaiah, or excuse me, Elijah. Mark's first readers would immediately have caught the reference to one of Israel's most dynamic prophets. It's, it's, it's as if I were to describe um, the coming of our next president as having orange hair and gold toilets. Now, having lived in this culture over the past eight years, you'd know right away the reference I'm making, wouldn't you? I mean, you, you get that, right? But so what? I mean, who cares if Mark's making a not-so-subtle reference to Elijah? Well, Horsley and Hansen write that Elijah is a crucial figure in all this because he's portrayed in the Hebrew Scriptures as a prophet who pronounced judgment on the king and his court. The, case, the king in this case, Ahab, had oppressed God's people. And Elijah, Elisha, and their followers fomented a popular rebellion against the house of Ahab. See, in other words, Mark opens his gospel by proclaiming a euangelion, good news, glad tidings, that Caesar and his mighty armies and all the subsequent Caesars who ruled over Rome, those who had oppressed God's people, were about to see the world over which they, had, they thought they had total control. They're about to see that it actually belongs to God and not to them. And God isn't happy with the way Caesar has cared only about enriching the rich and impoverishing the impoverished. But the outcome of this confrontation between God and Caesar, it's never in doubt. Mark gives up the game in the very first sentence. He says, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, remember, this is a euangelion, which is an announcement of victory after battle has already been won. That's right. Mark gives away the game in the first sentence by preemptively declaring victory. Any drama in his gospel won't be about the eventual outcome. This bit of good news will center on how God will achieve victory over the mighty Roman Empire with nothing more intimidating than a bug-eating prophet and a wandering Galilean carpenter. Do you know how audacious that is? It feels like a 12-year-old picking a fight with Mike Tyson. I mean, there's no chance. And yet here's Mark 
declaring victory before we even get to the battle. See, Mark's not playing. He, he already knows how the whole thing's going to turn out. And we who live under a different empire read Mark's gospel with the same outlandish boldness. After all, that's what Advent is all about, isn't it? Our patient waiting for a victory that's already been won, but isn't something that we yet possess. In a world that feels increasingly out of control day after day, we've been giving glad tidings that sound unrealistic at best and, and, and downright deranged at worst. I mean, we live in a world that has a way of grinding people down, making them beg for their bread, judging them by the color of their skin or the country of their origin, the, the fullness of their bank account, or the people they love. In short, we live in a world content to force people to justify their very humanity before we'll even see them as neighbors. Into such a world comes Mark's gospel. Carrying John the Baptist, Elijah, Jesus, Caesar, and the whole Roman Empire on its back, announcing that the world we know, the one that's taken so much from so many, is coming to an end. And a new one is coming to take its place. Only in this new world, there will be no more need for good news of successful battles, because even though there are still battles to fight, Mark lets us know from the outset that the war has already been won. And that, that's glad tidings for everyone. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.